It's early on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's raining lightly, a mist covering the city. Maybe it's bright and sunny, the last moments of summer before fall pulls the warmth away. In a house, or an apartment, or a trailer, or something in between, a woman goes into labor. She leaves her home, in a town of only around 12,000 people, and heads to the hospital. It's decorated in balloons, streamers covering the outside of the small building. It's opening day at Overlake Medical Center, and the hospital doesn't actually open for a few more hours. But Molly Sitzprin doesn't really have the luxury to wait that long. She gives birth to her daughter, Catherine Mary, known as Kathy, in a hospital with 56 beds. Hers is the only one taken. If this story sounds familiar, it's because you've heard it before. It's how we started this series. From there, we weaved our way through death and disease, through the follies and triumphs of medicine that led to where Overlake is today. We've explored cancer and gynecology and the heart and lungs and so much more. But we never made our way back to Molly, to what it was like giving birth in a new hospital in a little town in 1960. The fear she might have had, the advice she might have been given, the help she received. Disease and death are a big part of a hospital, of any medical community. But so is life. So is creating new things, new ideas, new treatments, new hope. So, for the final episode of the first season of Overheard from Overlake, let's take a look at where it all begins, away from disease and death, from endings and transformations. Let's talk about beginnings. Let's talk about birth. This is Overheard from Overlake Medical Center, a healthy dose of stories about award-winning, compassionate, and patient-centered care. Our care is all about you. I was terrified, to be honest with you. Amy Jansen was a patient at Overlake. She gave birth to two children in their mother and baby unit, and was in fact born there herself. You know, I had these ideas of what pregnancy was going to be like. I knew our whole life was going to be changing. Um, and so that's just a lot to be thinking about. Um, all the different what if this, what if that, uh, what's labor going to be like, what's it going to be like when we bring baby home. So there was definitely a lot of emotions that you're going through and experiencing. So, yeah, I was excited, but I was terrified at the same time. The emotions she describes about pregnancy are ones I'd imagine every expecting parent goes through. The nervousness that something could go wrong, that you could mess up everything without even trying. It's natural to feel nervous about a new stage in life. And not too long ago, it was a really dangerous one to go through. A century ago, the death rate was more than 600 women per 100,000 births. In the 16 and 1700s, the death rate was twice that by some estimates, between one and one and a half percent of women died giving birth. And that was the rate per birth. So the lifetime risk of dying in childbirth was much higher, perhaps 4%. For a woman in the 16 or 1700s, it seems unlikely that one wouldn't know someone that had died in childbirth. The fear and nervousness Amy felt must have swelled in each of them. The thought that something could happen to them or their baby that they wouldn't be able to fix. 
Of course, there were people ready to help assuage those fears, though the techniques they suggested were pretty questionable. Even today, there are risks. According to the CDC, about 700 women die each year in the United States as a result of pregnancy or delivery complications. Overlake is working hard to lower those numbers, in part by doing something you might expect they wouldn't need to, just informing the expecting patient on what could go wrong. So preparing yourself for the unknown is extremely important because sometimes things don't occur the way we expect them to occur. Sometimes babies come a little bit earlier. Sometimes babies are a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller, or you have a health concern that you weren't anticipating at all. Again, knowledge is your friend. So get involved, sign up for classes as much as you can, ask questions at your doctor's appointment, and know that even if you are just pregnant and questioning things, many people have a lot of preconceived ideas and, and uh, questions about breastfeeding. You can even have a prenatal lactation appointment at our mom and baby care center. These nurses, again, can really help you through some of those uh, challenging questions and when you come to form your opinions of what you want to do as as you take your baby home. That's Sandy Salmon, manager of the mother-baby unit and mother and baby care center at Overlake. Her advice is what you might expect at a hospital. Information on lactation, on preparing for things that don't go as planned. It's information created by people who have experienced or at least observed the birth process. Totally normal, right? Well, for hundreds of years, that wasn't the case. Birth from antiquity through the Middle Ages was an all-girls affair, orchestrated by men who had never seen a baby being born. It was considered obscene for a man to enter the delivery room, yet they wrote the guidebooks, doling out advice based on hunches handed down over generations. Hippocrates, our dear friend the Greek physician, suggested that you could tell how fertile a woman was by placing a head of garlic on her womb. If her breath smelled of garlic the next day, one could conclude that she could not conceive. There was nothing inside her body to block the aroma and, more importantly, has a baby. Your child was what you ate, according to Native American lore. Moms were typically told to avoid berries, which could cause birthmarks, and salmon, which might lead to weak ankles. As late as the 19th century, it was largely believed that what a pregnant woman looked at or even thought about could influence how attractive her child would be. Exposure to ugly, disfigured, or sick people might result in a child born with a cleft lip or birthmark. I think one of the things that we have found in recent years is that even though there's an increase in information available for expectant parents, new parents, that actually people have had less exposure to newborns than they have in generations past. So we really encourage people to not just watch a YouTube video, but actually take classes. This is where you're going to build that support system of other families who are having babies at the exact same time you are, so that you know you're not alone on this journey. And that's an extremely important part because Having a new baby can be a little exhausting, and it's nice to know someone else is tired out there with you. 
If even now, Sandy finds we have too little hands-on experience with babies, what must the woman have felt like to have to keep a straight face and believe when a man who had never seen a birth or examined a pregnant woman's body told her what would be best for the child? However, it wasn't only from the mouths of men that people received advice on childbirth. They also looked to the Bible. Eve, the first woman to become pregnant, suffered from excruciating pain during her delivery. It was her punishment for eating the forbidden fruit, along with being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. In God's fury, God told Eve, I greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. In other words, it was God's decision that childbirth should be painful, and doing anything to prevent or assist with that pain was to go against God's will. For hundreds of years, people believed that this was true. In 1591, Euphame McLean was burned at the stake for asking for pain relief during the birth of her twins. Pain relief only became somewhat acceptable when Queen Victoria asked Dr. John Snow for a whiff of chloroform to ease her delivery during the birth of Prince Leopold on April 7, 1853. But even then, it was really only considered acceptable in very certain situations, like being the Queen of England and giving birth to, you know, royalty. Now we expect more of our doctors, that they actually take our needs into consideration, instead of following the words of men who aren't involved in the birth, or stories that insist a woman doesn't need pain relief. We try to integrate our healthcare, as David LaMarche, executive director of the Eastside Health Network, explains. To make sure a patient is taken care of and their issues or needs understood by whoever is assisting them. Clinically integrated care is really trying to bring together the hospital facilities, the primary care providers, the specialists, all uh, individuals who provide care or all facilities provide care for a particular individual. The larger community on the east side, I think there's a lot of options, and the networks has a couple of different goals in relationship to that. So one would be integrating all of the, the care spheres that a patient uh, lives in. So it would be primary care, it would be specialty care, it would be the hospital, maybe a skilled nursing facility if something like that is needed. In addition to that, the network is intent on supporting independent providers. And the world for independent providers is getting more and more difficult. The costs of healthcare for running an office continue to increase, the regulatory burden continues to increase. And so when we as a network begin to work and support some of those independent practices, we want to help them stay independent if that's part of their goal and what's important to them. And in turn, that provides variety and opportunity for patients to find the care environment that they feel most comfortable in, whether that's a large delivery system that's highly integrated and kind of under one banner or an independent practice that may be more in tune to their specific needs or wants. As the profession of medicine grew during the 1800s, doctors started to edge their way into the potentially lucrative business of childbirth. It was considered a low-status specialty and wasn't taught well or at all in most medical schools. And that lack of training or experience showed. The death rate in the overall population started dropping at the end of the 1800s, and it dropped most dramatically during the first few decades of the 20th century. But childbirth deaths were different. They actually increased during the first few decades of the 20th century, even though pregnant women had less exposure to disease and were more likely to have clean water, 
proper nutrition, safe food, and comfortable housing. They died in droves in childbirth. And it was the doctor's fault. The biggest danger to expectant mothers was infection. In the mid-1800s, Ignaz Semmelweis discovered that doctors in his hospital in Vienna were spreading puerperal fever when they went directly from performing autopsies to delivering babies. But his work was mostly ignored. Doctors were offended by the accusation that their filth was responsible for deadly disease. Gentlemen didn't have dirty hands. Interestingly, for this reason, childbirth was one of the only times when wealthy women had a higher chance of death than poor ones. Poor women could only afford midwives, where rich ones could afford doctors. But doctors in turn had to justify their fees and distinguish themselves from lowly midwives by providing new tools and techniques. These techniques were untested and unsafe. Forceps, anesthesia, and deep sedation were overused. Caesarean sections became more common, and while they did occasionally save a woman who would have died of obstructed labor, often the mother died of blood loss or infection. Women giving birth in hospitals were at a greater risk than those delivering at home. Disease and infection spread more readily in hospitals, and doctors were all too eager to use surgical equipment. Death rates in childbirth finally began to drop in the 1930s, with the introduction of sulfa antibiotics, which were highly effective against the streptococcal bacteria, responsible for most cases of puerperal fever. Doctors cleaned up their acts, too. A series of reports in the 1940s linked high death rates to improper medical procedures. So training improved, and doctors abandoned the most dangerous techniques. Complications from C-sections declined steadily. And medical researchers now rigorously evaluate success rates and risks of new techniques and drugs before trying them out on people. They also understand now that you need to prepare, and not just by avoiding looking at ugly things or eating berries. As Sandy describes, you need to be ready for pregnancy, for birth, and for actually having a tiny human that's depending on you for literally everything. Some of the very important things to be prepared with is remember that your baby's going to need a doctor too. So please interview pediatricians and know which doctor you want to be taking your baby to, who you want to have come to the hospital to see your baby after they're born. That's an important decision. Look around and really make that informed decision. Other things to be prepared is prepare your body even before pregnancy. Maybe you're just thinking about getting pregnant. What does it take to have a healthy body for pregnancy? It means that diet and nutrition and exercise do play a part in how you handle pregnancy. If you feel like you have some special dietary considerations, meeting with a nutrition consultant beforehand, before pregnancy even, could really help you have the muscle, connective tissue, and strength to be able to manage pregnancy and the postpartum period easier. As nutrition improved, there were fewer women with rickets, which caused bone deformations. Prenatal care became a standard part of medical practice. Reliable, safe, and legal birth control allowed women to limit and time their pregnancies, and it led to a decrease in illegal abortions, a leading cause of death in pregnant women historically. 
we began to realize that pregnancy is a process that deserves respect, that it needs more than an untrained doctor with a pair of forceps showing up when the water breaks. In fact, you need more than just a doctor in general. You need a community. Overlake is unique in that we have an extremely different model because we have the mom and baby care center. So prenatally, we have a full range of classes that you can take to prepare for giving birth to and taking care of baby after baby comes. But then on top of that, we offer breastfeeding classes, we offer for newborn care classes, we offer car seat safety checks. We then continue to offer starting solid food classes and after baby comes support groups after you go home that you can come back to. We have outpatient lactation services that you can attend for as long as you need to for breastfeeding help. And we also have an infant nutrition clinic for baby that are struggling with their growing after delivery. And that is very unique at Overlake. The other unique piece is just this idea that we have an outpatient postpartum clinic called the Mom and Baby Care Center. And so when you go home on your day of discharge, you actually will be given an appointment there where nurses who are highly skilled in newborn care and postpartum care for mothers, and they are lactation uh, specialists will help you after you've gone home and you've written down all your questions of going, oh no, why in the world did I not figure this out or remember what my nurse said to me in the hospital? They have those answers and can really reassure you or get you the help you need if after going home things have kind of fallen apart. Amy found a lot of comfort in those classes. They helped ease her fears and nervousness around giving birth. So my husband and I made the decision to sign up for one of the birthing classes. Uh, and that was probably the best thing that we did to prepare for not only birth, but also just having a child. Uh, and it did a couple different things for us. But one of the first things that it did for us as a uh, husband and wife was it just helped us to start that line of communication. Um, and it brought us together as a team. Before, it, I had just kind of been like, okay, I, I know my husband wants to be involved, but he didn't necessarily know how to be involved, and I didn't know what were the right ways to involve him in labor and delivery. Um, so right away, just opening up those lines of communication and working together as a team was very beneficial. Aside from that, there were just a lot of tools and resources that are talked about in those child birthing classes that really help you prepare for labor and delivery and also bringing your baby home. And then some of the other things that we did was we got to do a tour of the hospital. And that, again, you don't think it's going to be a big deal, <laughs> but when you are actually in labor, there's so many different stressful things that you're experiencing. And so just knowing where to go, where to park, where to walk into, what the process is going to look like, having done that beforehand, it gave us so much more peace of mind when we were actually in labor. So we were able to focus on each other, supporting each other, and helping bring the baby into this world in a non-stressful environment. So just doing little things like that were great. Um, like I said, we only had time with our work schedules to be able to take one class, and that was the, the birthing classes that we did. Um, but I, one of the things that I knew was available was the new moms group, 
and that was huge for me once baby came. It was such a huge resource to be able to have access to. I think as a new mom, sometimes it can be a little bit isolating, and I knew other moms who had kids, and so I was like, oh, I could ask them questions, like, I'll be okay. But it's amazing how nice it is to have moms who are right in that same stage with you to be able to talk through different problems and issues. So the new moms group that I did, it was on Thursday mornings and I just would come every Thursday and it was a great time to just be able to talk through, okay, I'm having this issue with nursing or, you know, right now my baby's doing this. What does that mean? Um, There were different physical therapists that would come in or sleep experts that would come in. Uh, Just general nurses would come in and we would talk through different topics that are very applicable to where you're at right then and there. Um, And that was probably the best thing that I did after baby was just getting plugged into that support group and it was amazing too because sometimes you'd be talking through an issue in the group and you wouldn't even like it wouldn't be an issue for you at that time but then the very next week like you'd be experiencing that and you would have this knowledge from the conversation earlier so all of that was so very helpful to me um, right after my baby was born. Overlake focuses a lot on community health care, on making sure that they can reach their patients wherever they go for help. So I think the difference for a patient from a historic experience where they may see a primary care provider, get admitted to a hospital, and then end up back in that primary care provider's office, historically they may not have um, had a uniform experience. The primary care provider may not have known what happened in the hospital. The hospital may not have had all the information when the patient got admitted. And so from a clinically integrated standpoint, our goal is to make sure that everybody has all the information about the patient's care, about their diagnosis, about their wants and needs from a care experience experience standpoint. And we want to make sure that the patient understands that um, we're communicating with each other and that we know what's going on with the care of that patient. The network provides comprehensive footprint of care providers across the the environment that we are in or the geography that we're in. And so um, patients will have an option to say, oh, I I want to be seen close to my home or I want to be seen close to my work. Uh, Or if they have a a loved one they're caring for, maybe there's a provider that's closer for them. And so being able to integrate care gives us an opportunity to say, well, we've got clinics all around you. And so proximity to whatever is important to you uh, is what we're striving for. We started this podcast by talking about Molly Sitzprin, about a hospital that opened early to make sure she was able to give birth when and where she wanted to, because she was a member of our community. And if these last five episodes haven't made it clear, establishing community, a center where both patients and doctors feel comfortable and safe, is what Overlake is all about. And this podcast is a part of that care of creating another tool, another piece of information our community can use, can understand that, like with Molly Sitzprin, Overlake is here to open the doors for you. Though, thankfully, they have a few more beds now. Thank you for listening to Overheard from Overlake. We are produced by Twisted Scholar in partnership with Large Media. And while this is the end of season one, we're not over yet. So subscribe and maybe leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find the show. And we'll see you soon for season two. I've been your host, Sarah Leibovitz. 
This is Overheard from Overlake Medical Center, a healthy dose of stories about award-winning medical professionals and patient-centered care for the East Side. Overlake Medical Center, compassionate care for every life we touch.